Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by my buddy Jack Posobiec. Jack is an expert in all things China and Taiwan related. We're, of course, going to talk about the outrage that happened in Mar-a-Lago last night. And that really is what I want to talk to you guys about here before we bring on Jack. What the hell? I, I mean, whiskey tango foxtrot. I'm not going to actually spell that out for you using the NATO alphabet. You can make your own conclusions from there. What the hell happened last night? What is happening to the rule of law in the United States of America? I have no idea. And I say that as someone who went to a pretty top law school, clerked for a federal appellate judge. I do the law school speaking circuit. And I am telling you guys that what is happening to the rule of law in America is disgusting. It is truly disgusting. I mean, as recently as two months ago, two and a half months ago, whenever it was, I was there in Washington, D.C. before the end of the Supreme Court term. I remember walking by the U.S. Supreme Court building and seeing those big letters, those big words, equal justice under law etched into the beautiful marble edifice that is the United States Supreme Court. Well, I'm sorry, but equal justice under law, my ass. What is happening in the United States right now is not equal justice under law. Peter Navarro, former high-ranking Trump administration figure when it comes to trade, in handcuffs. My friend, John Eastman of the Claremont Institute, phone seized with a general warrant, the likes of which the British issued to the colonists in the 1760s and really which led to the drafting of the Fourth Amendment, intended to prohibit that sort of direct thing. James O'Keefe, another friend of mine, the head of Project Veritas, Battering Ram knocked down his door in Westchester County, New York last fall in another pre-dawn raid in handcuffs on the floor of his own house simply for engaging in his First Amendment right to do journalism. What is going on? So in case you've been sleeping under a rock, of course, in a pre-dawn raid yesterday, 30 plainclothes FBI agents broke into, I shouldn't say broke into, they executed a search warrant to go into Mar-a-Lago, President Trump's estate in Palm Beach, Florida, where they seized 15 boxes. They broke into his private safe. If you take their purported or the purported news reporting on this seriously, we have not actually seen the warrant yet. I truly hope that we see that soon. We absolutely have to see that soon. Even liberals like former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo are calling for that search warrant to be made public and unsealed at this point, lest we see the politicization of justice for what it is. And they took 15 boxes of what appear to be presidential records. The fig leaf here, the and I do say fig leaf, seems to be a purported violation of the Presidential Records Act. You know, hold in mind that the United States president, which, you know, as much as the left would want to rewrite history, Donald Trump was the 45th president of the United States. 
He has the power to declassify any record he wants, but it's actually even more than that. You know, here's what a, a good buddy of mine, Mike Davis, the founder of three groups, including them, the Judicial Branch Focus Article 3 Project, he put out this statement last night. Mike said, quote, the president of the United States has the power to declassify any record he wants. So it's pretextual legal nonsense for the Biden Justice Department to pretend President Trump broke any criminal statute by taking 15 boxes of his records with him when he left. Former presidents have government paid staff and offices, secret service protection, security clearances and secure facilities to store classified records. So there's no legitimate concern that President Trump's records could have gone into the wrong hands. Furthermore, why do you need to do a pre-dawn raid with 30 agents? Just issue a subpoena. No, this is a fig leaf. This is a show of power. But it's worse than that. It is a genuine crossing of the Rubicon. The sicking of the federal law enforcement apparatus onto a former president of the United States as an act of public humiliation, let alone a former president who is quite clearly and palpably gearing up to run again, that is the kind of thing that happens in tin pot dictatorships, in third world banana republics. That happens in Venezuela. That happens in sub-Saharan Africa. Happens maybe in like Iran or some effed up country like that. That is not the republic that Benjamin Franklin spoke of in 1787 when he famously described what had happened in the Philadelphia Convention where they drafted the Constitution as, quote, a republic if you can keep it. We really, really, really are letting this grand experiment in order to liberty and lowercase r Republican self-governance slip away by the wayside at this point here. And again, the onus for our side is one thing to call it like we see it, to call out the nonsense, to call this out. It is another to soberly recognize where we are in what appears to be a falling, decadent, late stage republic and to act accordingly, to use a phrase that has become a bit of a leitmotif on this podcast to know what time it is and to command our side's battle stations accordingly to go to battle in this roiling cold civil war against our domestic foes that the Biden regime has just dramatically escalated. That is the imperative of the hour. So wake up everyone who is still a patriot, who still loves this country, as Ben Weingarten wrote just today for Newsweek, check it out, newsweek.com slash opinion. It is a time for choosing. You choose the regime or you choose the American people. I hope you choose accordingly. Let's take it to a quick commercial break. We'll be joined shortly again by Jack Posobiec. Stay with us. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Thrilled to be joined on a day like today, a very dark day for the Republic, that is, by 
buddy of mine who I've been trying to get on for a while, happy and delighted to finally make it happen. That, of course, is Jack Basobic. He's senior editor at Human Events and a former Navy intelligence officer. So, Jack, thanks so much for being with us here. Yeah, Josh, I appreciate it. So you you still wanted to talk about China Taiwan? There's there's nothing else going on in the <laughs> this week. Nothing, nothing yeah. big because because oh, people don't realize that we actually had had pre planned to do the show today, and then they just said like, yeah, we'll keep an eye out in case anything happens in the news. And you know, I, I can't think of anything that's that's really taking place. So yeah, so, no, yeah. It, it's it worked out quite serendipitously, if I if I may say that. I mean, I we wanted to bring you on to talk about Pelosi Taiwan China. That's your area specialty. You had a great op ed for us in Newsweek back in. Oh, I don't know. Back in February, I think it was about that topic. But let's we have to get the elephant out of the room first, obviously, which is what the bloody hell just happened at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach. Not not terribly far from from where I live. I live in Miami. I mean, it's, uh, you know, barely over an hour on the train or the car. So what is your what's your quick take? I mean, like what if you if you had to do kind of like a quick, you know, quick sound by reaction to what the hell just happened? What is what is your summary on that? Well, I mean, you know, really, my first question is, is AOC okay? Have we made sure that she's all right, that she's going to be, you know, she made it through the raid perfectly fine, no lingering truck. <laughs> but, but no, no, it's, it's when you have a reading of history, and even just not to go into the J. Edgar Hoover files, but the the recent very recent history of the FBI, you know, it's, it's kind of like anything else in in media or in society these days that there's almost two it's as scott adams says it's like watching um one movie on two screens so you kind of have your your left-wing view that the fbi is still honorable and still this wonderful incredible institution that is upholding the rule of law and that's why they're going after trump and all of his corrupt cronies and that's that's sort of your hashtag resistance view but if you're on the right, you've looked at an organization that gave Hillary Clinton a pass for, by the way, for classified materials. Let's let's not forget right, the right. irony in that um, during campaign. Then the same organization planted spies and lied to a FISA court to open up an investigation of uh, a real estate developer who wanted to run for president. First time he ever ran for anything in his life. They did do all of that. Um, spread lies and leaking to the mainstream media to open up this investigation. By the way, an investigation that consumed two years of the president's first term in office and include and actually led to uh, convictions or at least um, prosecutions of people like his campaign managers and his uh, his national security advisor Michael Flynn. And you've seen a prolonged, almost tete a tete between this populist uprising. And the FBI, who you could view them as almost sort of the the American Stasi of the of the elite, right? And that's that's the populist view on this. And so I think that if you ascribe to that view that well, these guys have always had it in for Trump, and they wanted to get him from the start, then today's events shouldn't come as any surprise to you. Do you buy that this is actually about the Presidential Records Act, or, or is that just a total fig leaf? You think? Well, I do think that that's the imprimatur, right? And I think that you've got Garland in there who, remember, he's got a huge bone to pick, not necessarily directly with President Trump, but just Republicans in general, because he views Republicans and McConnell as denying him his his right to a seat on the Supreme Court. Remember, that was his seat. He was supposed to be granted it. And then suddenly, because of the machinations of the Senate, was not able to achieve it. So now that he's attorney general, and I don't have any specific uh, reporting on this, but I like to think that it's sort of his 
his he's you know he's getting revenge right he's on a revenge streak against anyone associated with the republican party certainly the president that nominated the you know uh, i believe it was gorsuch um nominated the person to the spot that was supposed to be his but but this is the most terrifying thing is what you just said because it it is vindictive it clearly is revenge i mean this clearly is the weaponization of the national law enforcement apparatus the same law enforcement apparatus that lied to get the Pfizer surveillance on Carter Page i mean you know you and i know the whole story by now inside and out I, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't say I was surprised when I saw this happen, but just those the images of the cops there in Palm Beach outside Mar-a-Lago, it really does. It really does not, not not to use like an overplayed phrase, but it really does feel like a crossing of the Rubicon. And, you know, what some of us have been saying for months, for years now about this two tiered system of justice where Hillary Clinton and the server is free. Hunter Biden, obviously, the influence peddling Ukraine, China, you name it. No one is, is going to you know look into him any further, it seems at this point. It's just getting out of hand. And, you know, I think back, I was on my friend Lisa Booth's podcast recently. Lisa's a former guest on this show as well. And she basically said to me, when the rule of law is breaking down like this, what do we do? And I, I gave an answer at the time, but I'd be curious for your answer. I mean, what, what does our side do at a time when the notion of equal justice under law is just crumbling before our very eyes? Look, I mean, let's let's not forget that the political headwinds are in this midterm year are blowing towards the right. And you've got a situation where, politically speaking, it this isn't going to shift the needle in terms of any of the issues that are leading that that switch. Um, You know, you've got this massive movement in the Hispanic community. You're starting to see some movement in the African-American community as well. And it has nothing to do with the Presidential Records Act. Right. Right. It has to do with trade. It has to do with inflation. It has to do with gas prices which you know is is related to geopolitics and the green movement and spending and so all of none of those fundamentals have changed and so if you are then looking at if we are looking at a potential republican upswing in november uh, carrying into a majority in the house and you know either either a you know a two three votes majority in the senate you know maybe a soft majority in the senate you then have to go the people of the party and independents as well by the way need to band together to to say one of the agenda items in the republican policy platform it looks like kevin mccarthy is going to be speaker it absolutely has to be reform of the system of justice at the federal level in the United States. And by the way, I'd also add that at the local level, when you've got these woke uh, prosecutors letting all the you know these violent felons right. out on the street again, that it 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 it's similar to you saw um, you saw similar dynamics in immediately, I guess, prior to the fall of imperial russia in that these bolsheviks and mensheviks the reformers were going running around everywhere saying well this is just in the name of reform it's just in the name of reform oh no we're going after these guys because you know this this czar he's a traitor to russia so we're going to have to go after him and his family and these guys we're going to have to go after them as well and the the violent criminals they're all going to get let out because you know they're just they're just reflective um, and responsive to an oppressive state of the czar and even if they went and committed some violence well it's not really their fault because they're an oppressed class and they're responding to their oppressors meanwhile if you know, someone like you or I were caught with, you know, say a pocket knife, well, we'd be sent directly to jail, right? right? This is what was going on in the fall of the Tsar's Russia. You're seeing those same type of 
you know, and again, it's it's also it's it's with the same language, social reform, we're reforming society, it's equal justice, social justice. These are Marxist concepts. And along with Marxism, you get a state police. That's exactly what we're seeing now at the highest levels of the United States. And I do think, by the way, I do think that this is something where, and I, you know, I kind of live on the on the populist right side of of the uh, of the spectrum, but I do think that this is one of those stories that because it's Trump and because it's Mar-a-Lago and because the visuals were so striking, that this is definitely one of those things that's just going to bleed over into Middle America. It's going to bleed over to the the normie side of the information space, the information environment, where people are going to say, you know, I don't think it's normal for an administration to go after. The former administration like this and certainly in another unprecedented situation where we're pretty sure this guy is going to be the front runner and the chief opposition candidate in the upcoming election. So that actually really takes me right to my next question. So you had a tweet last night kind of in the immediate aftermath of when this all happened. You said Trump just won the 2024 primary. And that, that was kind of one of my first instincts too. my kind of 4D chess reading here. I'd be curious for your take on this is that that's exactly what they want, that they actually want Trump to be the nominee again, because for, you know, for, you know, I'm not sure exactly what their internal political calculus is, but but I, I think they probably think he can be defeated because they defeated him in 2020, you know, obviously hold aside what exactly happened in 2020 with the election and all that stuff. So is that your reading too? I mean, do you think that they want him to be the nominee and this actually kind of helps put him in the spotlight as an act of martyrdom or am I kind of too conspiratorial for de-chessing that one? Well, no, I, I do think that's 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 the right read on it. I think their view is that, hey, we you know, we we beat their again. Their view is that they beat him in 24 in 20 and they can do so again in 24. And it's as simple as that. But uh, by cracking down this hard and committing acts that are so egregious, what's interesting is that if you look at Trump's internals, the place where he's got trouble right now isn't with the right and certainly not with the populist right. I mean, go look at all the primaries, right? He's, he's been like clean sweeps from Arizona to Pennsylvania to uh, Washington State, if, if the numbers that we're getting in last night are indicative of, of Joe Kent. But that's not where Trump has a problem. Where Trump has a problem right now is with independents. Um, independents are taking a look and saying, eh, you know, maybe maybe DeSantis is a little bit of, a, of an easier easier road to hoe. You know, you know, we're worried about baggage. We're worried about January 6th, all these different things. You, you constantly hear this from independents. This is something that could actually swing independents back towards Trump because they're going to look at a situation like this and you're going to have a lot of people, especially, by the way, donors, um, who, of course, play play a role in this uh, as well. They're going to say, look, if the FBI is just picking and choosing political targets, then I need someone who's willing who's willing to fight back as forcefully as they're fighting him. And that's going to make people say, you know what, maybe we should give that old Donald Trump a try again. I, I think you're probably right. I mean, like, he, this is very good optics for him. I think Trump definitely likes playing the role kind of, of of martyr and victim. And he is unambiguously a victim here. I mean, he has he is clearly the victim of an unprecedented sicking of the federal law and, enforcement. And by the way, Go by ahead. The way I was going to say the, the, the Presidential Records Act. I mean, you know, the idea that the president couldn't declassify documents. He's right, the president. Right, he has right. originator classification authority. He is the person who determines as the federal, the sole executive 
of that branch of government. He has constitutional authority totally. to determine what is classified or not, period. And that is, by the way, the because I'm sure people will say, what about Hillary Clinton, all you hypocrites? No, 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 no. She was not president. She did not have that authority. Um, we have entire libraries all across the United States dedicated to documents that presidents uh, brought out of the White House. With Let's them. take it to a quick commercial break. On the other side, we're going to shift and talk about what we originally wanted to talk with Jack about, which is China, Taiwan, Nancy Pelosi and all that. So stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Jack, you speak fluent Mandarin. I I actually took Mandarin for a year and a half in college. I'm not going to embarrass myself on this podcast by starting to whip out some of that knowledge that I've totally forgotten over the past 10, 15 years. But China is obviously in the news right now. On last week's show, we were talking a lot about Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. So first of all, did you support what she did? Where did you come down on whether she did the right thing or not? Well, to me, it just looked like what she was doing was a was theater. I mean, the, to me, it looked like a PR stunt. I'm not, I fail to grasp how this helped the people of Taiwan. I fail to grasp how it helped the people of China, the Labai Xing, who are underneath the boot of the CCP and have always been the first victims of the CCP. Uh, instead, it seemed like what she did was exacerbate the situation. Um, we, by the way, we just saw that her and her husband had to dump all that semiconductor stock that they got caught uh, pu- trying to do a pump and dump where right before the CHIPS Act was passed in the Senate. By the way, where were those semiconductors manufactured? That's right, Taiwan. This is the NVIDIA and uh, what I think 15 out of the four. 15 out of the 18 manufacturing sites for these semiconductors are on the island of Taiwan, directly the ones that they were investing in. But of course, they got caught by you know a bunch of guys on the internet, so they had to quietly sell them and say, oh, no, 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 this had nothing to do with that. Um, but it's, it's amazing, and we were just talking about you know, the FBI and Trump. And isn't it wonderful that the CCP has yet another, not only were they given the excuse to conduct a full-on military blockade of, of Taiwan and actual missile tests for where for the very first time in, in history, they've fired ballistic missiles, five of them, over, actually fl- over flights of the island of Taiwan itself. Uh, North Korea conducts missile tests over Japan in many cases. Never seen the CCP. We've seen the CCP fire missiles near Taiwan, never over. At the same time, full-on military blockade of Taiwan. They're calling it drills, but you know, look at the map. We can see what they're doing. And, But you've got the FBI and Trump and all of this going on at the same time. The perfect distraction for Xi Jinping, and this is what I wrote about um, with, with, uh, with the piece we did together and published back in earlier this year, that Xi Jinping, if he wants to, he now has all the time in the world to make a move on Taiwan. Right. And he has... He has actually every reason in the world to do so because if he is able to go before that 20th party congress this november and stand up in front of him for the, the the factions and there still are some factions out 
out there in the party that uh, either support the prior administration of Deng Xiaoping, uh, well, two prior administrations ago, and uh, don't want this cult of personality situation. I've, I've also heard people saying, well, maybe they'll, you know, Gordon Chang was saying, well, yeah, they might try to put some some more people on the Politburo to beef up the factions. But if he's able to stand in front of them and say, I returned Taiwan to the fold, I took Taiwan back in a way that Chairman Mao never could. Yep. He is going to solidify his claim on chairmanship for life, and I think he'll get it. I think he'll absolutely get it if he's able to do that. So I, I, I think it's difficult, perhaps impossible, to overstate the outsized role that reclaiming Taiwan, you know, formerly known as the island of Formosa, what, what that means to the psyche of the Chinese Communist Party and what it has always meant to the psyche of the Beijing Politburo, really since Mao came into power there. At the same time, though, you know, I, I don't think that you can downplay the embarrassment that a that a botched invasion and you know an invasion that that goes awry could could mean for a china that you know in every other sphere is escalating so you know as recently as 10 15 years ago i would have probably personally cautioned against the doomsayers uh, back when you know, back when the people's liberation army wasn't flying these hypersonic missiles around the world in a fraction of a second when they didn't have the aircraft carriers and the warplanes and the missiles and everything that they currently have now i i do tend to be more pessimistic about them now because they truly have invested in that military so it seems to me like you share that kind of pessimism about their angling on taiwan well and josh it's, it's not even that and and i as i say this is a guy who was a navy officer that's you know the most effective way for them because they don't want to destroy Taiwan, right? They don't. They don't want the big fight because the big fight ends up with Taiwan uh, Island being completely set on fire, the Taiwan Strait being littered with sea mines, and so denying access to the maritime shipping routes that go within uh, the strait itself, as well as keep in mind the shipping routes on the eastern side of the island are right. huge. I mean, you're talking, you're talking between inside and out, that's 80 to 90% of the world. All the trade between China, Korea, Japan, and the rest of the world travels through that East China Sea area and the Taiwan Strait. So if we're talking, you, you do, you know, trillions of dollars on the line right. if they right. go to kinetic warfare. But a naval blockade is something they could pull off cheaply. And then at that point, if you're starving out the island, and, and as well as a uh, uh, throwing up a uh, uh, air defense exclusion zone, especially essentially saying that we're we're declaring the the airspace outside of Taiwan closed and that we will shoot down any plane that comes in. Then that you know a no fly zone essentially it's actually a shoot down zone is what it means. Then then they can get Taiwan without really putting up much of a fight. And when you look at the administration inside the United States, I just I don't think they have very very much credibility that they're going to be able to do anything. I mean, Taiwan look the geography of Taiwan is not the same as that of Ukraine. Taiwan does not have a Poland that's right next door where you can ship missiles and where you can ship javelins, where you can ship all this stuff through. It doesn't exist. It's right. all naval. And unfortunately for Taiwan, uh, that's always been the situation that they are right off of the coast of China. You know, Truman had this famous quote once where he said well, if we ever have to take a move on, on mainland China, well, well, we'll have Taiwan as a floating aircraft carrier for us because they're so close. Right. But, on the, but the flip side is also true because if China becomes strong, Taiwan is right there. Yeah, no, it wasn't just Truman. I think it was General MacArthur, Douglas MacArthur as well, who spoke repeatedly of this, the strategic importance of Taiwan back around the time of World War II and the Korean War conflict. So from, I mean, from a modern U.S. kind of hard-headed nationalist realist perspective, it seems to me that the 
primary reason for why the U.S. should care so much about Taiwan. Uh, main primary is overstating a little bit, but certainly one of the largest reasons is, of course, the semiconductor industry, right? And Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, has totally surpassed Intel out in Silicon Valley over the past 20, 30 years. They're putting out like three nanometer chips now. They're totally blowing out of proportion what, what Intel is now currently technologically capable of doing. Is that... From your perspective, also the primary reason for caring about Taiwan, or, or um, are there other reasons to kind of channeling your kind of more military naval background? Well, I think that it's it's certainly more of the uh, it's certainly the primary economic reason, and as well, I would you know don't um, overlook the importance, by the way, of those maritime ships. I mean, look, right, and and uh, when you know when you talk about it from a nationalist populist stance. It's well, of course, I would prefer if those industries were inside the United States, I would prefer that we didn't have to rely on any other country for uh, high end semiconductors to be able to run our, our trucks and our phones and, uh, you know, everything else that we use in this 21st century technology that we have. But unfortunately, we have this system of globalism that was connect that was constructed throughout the 1990s and 2000s. Um, and China was a court of course, played a big part of this. We switched under, under Carter, I believe, we switched diplomatic recognition from, tai- from Taiwan, which was the Republic of China, still is the Republic of China, at the United Nations and everywhere else to the CCP. That's where this all started, that we gave them the most favored nation status, brought them into the WTO, et cetera, et cetera. And at the heart of it, globalism is just that. It's a global supply chain. So right. if we're we are unfortunately dependent on this global supply chain now. We've got an administration that is continuing to try to uphold this global supply chain. They, they call it the liberal world order and the rules-based order and all these things, but it's a supply chain at the end of the day, right? It's a supply chain that they want to run and they use the imprimatur of, you know, Western values as, as, as you know, really being the way as the stick to try to tell other countries that they need to abide by whatever the United States and their, and their partners say. But you, you can't have both, I guess is what I'm trying to say, right? You, you either have to have one or the other, and there's going to be a huge period of pain if you allow the CCP into uh, and having this much control over that supply chain, which of course we did by design. And look, I, I was just in Davos, right? I, I, got, I, got, I got tangled up with the, the World Economic Forum poli- assigned police and Klaus Schwab and all this, uh, you know, for the, for the supposed crime of uh, reporting suspiciously and, you know, with a camera. But when I was in Davos at that World Economic Forum meeting, you heard Ukraine everywhere, Ukraine, 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 Ukraine. The one word that you didn't hear anywhere there, Josh, was the word Taiwan. There was no... There was no speaker who spoke about it. There was no session. There was no breakout session. There was no Taiwan house. It was if it was as if the island of Taiwan didn't exist and only China existed. And you know what? That's exactly what they want. So what can the U.S. do with respect to Taiwan that would not provoke China and precipitate an actual nuclear third world war? I mean, I mean, I mean, like what? But besides reshoring supply chains, you know, I mean, that's kind of that was a thrust of this excellent David Goldman essay last week at Compact Magazine. He basically says that that the best way to do this is don't militarily provoke. You know, we should be reshoring. I, I obviously agree with that. I'm kind of an economic nationalist. I'm sure you are, too. Is there anything beyond that, though, that we can and should be doing with respect to Taiwan specifically from a U.S. perspective? Well, sure. It's indirect. I mean, it, and it has, it has everything to do with. Uh, whether it's tariffs, whether it's putting the brakes on the foreign financial flows. I mean, uh, there's no such thing as the China model that was successful on its own. The CCP has been successful largely in part because of the massive inflows 
of Western capital that's gone into China since 1976 and the death of Chairman Mao, and which coincides with Deng Xiaoping taking over the country as uh, the paramount leader. So you've seen this for 50 years. I mean, there's a reason that Shanghai looks the way it does and Detroit looks the way it, it does, right? That's where Western capital is gone. So yep. this massive expansion of the factories, the massive expansion of the Chinese military, it's done so because of Western capital. And, um, you know, there's there's no idea that they were, you know, this, the thought was, well, we're going to outsource our manufacturing to Asia the way that we outsourced our energy policy to the Middle East. And it will be better for the people in the middle because they will, they'll be able to make more profits. And, we're, oh, we're, you know, we're sorry about all of you folks in, in middle America. You're just, you know, you'll just have to, you know, learn to code or something. Um, I was just up in, in central Pennsylvania recently, and it, it just really struck me. That's the, the former mining, you know, towns and everything. And so when you're faced with that situation, it has to be the economic button because at the end of the day, war with China, it would not be good for the United States. It would not be in the interest of the people of Taiwan. And it would, certainly wouldn't be interest of the people of China. What would be best, what would absolutely be best is if we are able to restructure and reorder that economic relationship first, and then eventually we'll get to reshoring, right? Reshoring right. is you know maybe step four or step five, but you can set up systems of tariffs. You can set up penalties for uh, working with companies that are involved in slave labor, companies that are um, enabling or participating in the Uyghur concentration camps and everything that's going on in Xinjiang, that you can set these things up and we can do so as a matter of policy. Unfair trade practices actually invoke some of these things. And if, if the World Trade Organization doesn't want to play ball, you can do so unilaterally. Uh, if, But of course, none of that's going to happen under the current administration. So let me ask you a somewhat provocative question, I guess, but you are a former Navy Intel officer with a specialty in China. And I guess my question is, if the ultimate black pill of all black pills happens, and we, through the entire stupidity of our feckless, out-of-touch ruling class, somehow find ourselves in an actual wartime footing with China, would we win? I mean, I remember I read, I read this essay from the same guy, David Goldman, in the Claremont Review of Books a couple of years ago. He, he basically said at this point, if we fight them in the Western Pacific, we would lose. I, I would be curious for, for your assessment of that. Well, I mean, it depends on how the battle was, battles were conducted. I mean, you would, you would have to, I mean, certainly we do have a nuclear weapon advantage over, over China. And if we could use our nuclear missile capability and that nuclear advantage to, again, that advantage, I mean, parking a couple of Trident missile subs right in the Bohai Gulf, tar directly targeting Beijing, directly targeting Zhongnanhai, where Xi Jinping and the higher cadres of the CCP's Politburo live. Um, I think that would be an extremely effective way to do it. But at the same time, if you look at the trouble the Seventh Fleet is having, and Seventh Fleet is our our Pacific Indo-Pacific fo uh, focused fleet, where I spent most of the time when I was in service, uh, we've got ships running into each other. We had a ship that just burned down at the pier in San Diego, the Bonhomme Richard, because the, the the sailors on board didn't actually know how to put out a fire on a ship. By the way, that's something that sailors have been working on for five thousand years, right? This is obviously the most dangerous threat when you're at sea. Uh, as a fire on ship, it should be the number one thing that you are worried about. Um, we can talk about the, the priorities Navy. And I, I, I said this to Congressman Crenshaw when I was on his podcast, that it, one of the greatest ways to deter any threat with Taiwan is to fix the U.S. Navy and directly with fixing the Seventh Fleet. If you don't do that, it's going to be a much, much harder fight for the Pacific than anything that we've seen before, certainly far exceeding the scale of the naval conflicts with uh, with the United States and Imperial Japan. The mere thought of that 
quite literally causing me to lose sleep at night. I, 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 it truly, and, and if, if, you know, if it doesn't cause you the listener. Which, Josh, by the way, I mean, for, first couple of minutes, and I, I've seen the assessments on this, first couple of minutes, Okinawa, gone, just gone, right? Guam, probably within the first couple hours. And then the threat's going to be put directly on Hawaii, right? So they, they refer to the, the island chains, right? The island chains of defense. The first island chain, uh, that includes Taiwan. The second island chain, that's out to the Philippines. But then the Chinese also have something they call the third island chain. By the way, the second chain also includes the South China Sea. Um, which, of course, they claim is their own lake. Uh, the third island chain, which is something not everybody talks about, that includes Hawaii. This is in their defense documents. This is in their plans. Wow. And they're going to come at us sideways. They're not just going to take out, they're not just going to fight us at the sea. They're going to go after our GPS satellites. So imagine every single person in the United States of America that when they go to drive to work, when they go to drive to pick up their kids, they don't have the ability to access GPS. Imagine what that does to your country overnight. No, I can't. I, I, I quite literally cannot even imagine. And, you know, anyone who anyone who believes in the power of prayer I, really has to be praying for wisdom from our rulers at a time of unprecedented tension like this in the aftermath of Pelosi's visit. These unprecedented Chinese Communist Party drills, the firing of the missiles over Taiwan. Just please pray. No matter how you think we should avoid a conflict, please pray that we do not actually get into a war with China because it, it would be the most catastrophic thing in the history of modern civilization. I, I truly do not think that is overstating it. But Jack, we're going to we're gonna have to wrap it there. Unfortunately, you and I could, could chat all day. But um, thank you so much for joining us this week. This worked out quite well, as you noted at the outset. So thrilled to have you. God bless you. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. talk a little bit more about the China discussion here. So I think for a lot of us who have really kind of come to the conclusion that the time is such to unwind the experiment in globalism and globalization, neoliberalism, really whatever you want to describe, the various trade and economic policies that have dominated the post-Cold War era over the past 30 to 33 years or so since the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. A lot of us kind of come to that conclusion that I was getting there in my Q&A with Jack when I was saying how, you know, when it comes to semiconductors, right, that's the obvious reason that we should care about Taiwan because Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company. And I obviously stand stand by that. I mean, Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company in particular has a huge outsized market share as far as the percentage of chips in the world in general, and especially as far as kind of the you know, the, the leading high-end chips that are used in automobiles and in military equipment, I mean, F-35s, you name it. And the fact that America ever made itself dependent, the fact that American policymakers, through our own will, through our own failure to invest in, 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 domestic, in domestic research, in domestic production, uh, you know, to kind of properly channel talent from the university systems to companies like Intel. The fact that we made ourselves dependent on this island that is so close 
to the sprawling landmass that is our geopolitical arch foe, the People's Republic of China, is just absolute, total, total insanity. It, truly. And we absolutely have to start unwinding the World Trade Organization and mission of China and ultimately reshoring supply chains and all of that. And, you know, Jack and I think we're on the same page there. But, you know, I think what's interesting is from his military naval perspective there, he's talking about about trade routes and not just in the Taiwan Straits, which separates, of course, mainland China from the island of Taiwan, but also the east of Taiwan, where a huge percentage of the world's trade goes through those routes. And he's totally correct to flag that. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're a populist, nationalist, globalist, Democrat, Republican, who, you know, who the hell cares what the label is at a certain point. If you care at a certain level about the basic economic condition of the human species, you have to want to prevent a catastrophic global depression. And unfortunately, at that, you know, given what has happened as far as globalism over the past 20, 30 years, the, the accumulation of such large swaths of global supply chains and critical supply chains by, by the Chinese, unwinding and, and, and reshoring is going to be an economically painful process. There is no clean and easy, quick way to rip off this Band-Aid. And, you know, if you simply stop trade whole hog with China, if the, you know, if the U.S. simply stopped trade tomorrow with China, that would, would be great for the long term, maybe. But in the short term, there are real rep repercussions for that. You know, when it comes to kind of the manufacturing of generic drugs, generic alternatives, antibiotics, I, a, a stupidly, a shockingly high percentage of those generics are manufactured in China. I literally think it's like 80 to 90 percent or something like that. The semiconductor issue is a huge issue. You know, the fact that that cars in the United States, uh, you know, outpace general general inflation as much as as they have uh, used cars, perhaps in particular over the past year or so, year and a half or so. I think a lot of folks were able to kind of pinpoint that on kind of the the vice, the grip that uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company and kind of uh, East Asia in general has over the over the U.S. economy when it comes to that stuff there. But, you know, that does take me back a little bit to Pelosi in Taiwan. So I do agree with with Jack that this was ultimately a stunt. And as I hope I said in the podcast last week, it was imprudent for Nancy Pelosi to put this on her calendar, let alone to not communicate that, to not coordinate that with the Biden administration. I mean, for, I mean, for the Speaker of the House to basically just go rogue, to go YOLO and put a highly sensitive, highly geopolitically con contested stop on her Asian tour like this is malpractice of the highest order. And the fact that the Biden administration, as recently as this past weekend, was just continuing to deflect and say, oh, she's the speaker. She can do whatever she wants. I mean, what utter total nonsense. I mean, there is an unbroken string of United States Supreme Court case law Perhaps the best citation for this is a somewhat obscure 1930s case called Curtis Wright, where the Supreme Court just says over and over again that as a basic matter of constitutional structure, the presidency is the leading organ of the United States when it comes to foreign policy, which is obviously true. I mean, that is directly in line with the constitutional structure and the framers' intentions. So to do something like this without coordinating with the president is just truly insane. But we're out of time for, for this week's episode. Thanks so much for tuning in as always. I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you next time.